postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here. Welcome back to the Story Church podcast. I am uh, super stoked to be back with you guys and I'm back with Maxwell Aka. As uh, we are, we're currently exploring a really, really heavy theme, and we're just now diving into episode three. I'm really stoked because I think this is the episode where a lot of stuff gets unraveled. So if you guys thought we've unraveled some stuff already, <laughs> oh man, this is stuff gets really good. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, the intersection of uh, philosophy and science as it plays into this debate over worship in the Adventist world. And of course, digging deeper than the topic of worship itself and identifying the ways in which a lot of these trends and moods and ideas that we subscribe to ultimately have a negative impact on our missional effectiveness, particularly in a post-church world. Uh, and also, I would add, I've failed to mention this so far, Maxwell, but I, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure you're very familiar with this. There is a movement going on right now uh, okay. all around the world. Um, I've got New Zealander friends that are doing it, Latino friends that are involved in it. Um, it's all over the world. And uh, it is it is what is termed the um, decolonization movement. Right. Yes. And the decolonization movement, for those of you who are unaware, is people from diverse cultures who have been colonized by the European way of thinking and being, who have finally sort of woken up and said, wait a minute, we want to reclaim the aspects of our culture that are unique to us and undo the elements of homogeny or the, the homogenization of culture that has taken place through European colonialism. And so there is an active resistance to Eurocentric or Eurocentrism as a whole. And as a church, if we do evangelism and we do outreach and we do church expression as a whole from a very Eurocentric place, we, we already inhabit a mood that emerging generations are rejecting. And it's not a mood that comes from the Bible, right? They're not rejecting scripture. Um, they are rejecting tyranny. They are rejecting empire. And I right. think that that's something we can get in line with. You know, we, we can appreciate that and celebrate that and, um, yeah, and and do some decolonization of our own. <laughs> um, so, Max, welcome back, bro. It's good to have you. Good to have you back. Let's let's jump right in. Let's talk about philosophy and science. So far, we've talked about racism and culture. We've talked about rhythm and God's time. We ended the last episode talking about, you know, these, what do we do with these supposed studies that claim this and that? And we harped on about that for a little bit. So yeah, let's, let's, let's jump in. It, it, there's some overlap between what we're going to do now and what we did in the last episode anyways, but yeah, of course. philosophy and science, let's, let's go there. Walk, walk us through why we're there and, uh, and then take us through the journey. All right. So I think, um, the first thing I want to say on this one, and I think since we ended the last episode kind of already leaning into the science side of things, I'll, I'll jump to that first, since that's kind of like, you know, thematically on point for us. And I think the first thing I would say about um, the, the science side of things is that we have to be careful that we don't bring really inconsistent principles to how we define theology and church practice, right? And, and obviously this being a conversation that's specific to Adventism, a, a big conversation in our community is what does sola scriptura look like for us, right? And obviously, you know, we have to examine that very often, whether from internal pressure or external pressure from other denominations, we have to ex examine that often in terms of like, okay, well, we've got this Ellen White thing going on, this gift of prophecy thing. So how, how does the authority of the gift of prophecy relate to sola scriptura? And like, does one undercut the other or whatever, right? So that's a live conversation in our community. But I think that when it comes to um, 
the music and worship issue, this is one of the clearest areas where, I mean, strangely enough, some of our traditionalists kind of just capitulate to secularism and scientism uh, like very readily, very easily. And, and suddenly it's as if like, oh, well, what defines uh, the parameters of Christian worship? The natural sciences, apparently, which, which, <laughs> it, which seems strange, you know? Um, and, and uh, you know, I used a term just now, scientism. Um, not sure how much common usage that gets, because I know that many people in the scientific community think of it as essentially like a Christian pejorative term, but uh, I'm, I'll, I'll use it, whatever. Um, so scientism, is, I mean, in, in a sense, it is kind of pejorative. It's a way that Christians will refer, well, not just Christians, people who do not have like a purely reductive materialist or secularist view of the world will say like, okay, there's science, which is the study of the world and the things in it and the application of scientific methods. And then there's scientism, which is the belief that science is the ultimate and maybe even only source of knowledge and truth in the world, right? Which is, I mean, that might sound like an appealing principle until you start like examining the claim, right? Like, is science the ultimate source of all theological truth? Uh, probably not is is the uh if you can conceive of such a thing as artistic truths or aesthetic truths uh, is science the arbiter of those probably not but maybe even at a more uh you know practical and like oh wow like a more serious level uh you know science doesn't define mathematics for us it kind of goes the other way around like mm. we have to assume the truth and and the reliability of our math skills in order to conduct science um, science, the scientific method to an extent doesn't really apply to history either. Um, you can't really put history in a laboratory and try to repeat it. Um, in fact, a lot of historians are trying to, you know, for goodness sake, get us to stop repeating it. Um, <laughs> it's like repetitions is apparently one of the biggest problems of history. So yeah. You know, that that would be a problem for the scientific method. Um, but, you know, th there are things that are outside of the purview of science. And I think for a lot of theistically minded people, religiously minded people, that has been for a long time, at, at very least within the time of the 20th century. That's been something that we've kind of been like, oh, yeah, of course, there are things that science either can't like can't explain at all or can't explain given our current status in human existence. Right. So all of that is a long-winded way of saying why when we have 66 books in a canon of scripture that have lots to say about worship, why this like arms race to see who can get the most like quotes from scientific journals, why, why this arms race to be like, ah, but it's bad for you scientifically, mm. right? And I think that actually leads to some interesting hermeneutics, but that then we have to say like, oh, the, the, the natural sciences are affecting our hermeneutics. Do we allow that to happen? Maybe that sounds progressive to some people. Maybe that sounds problematic to some people. I'm not here to like decide one way or the other, but I do think it is a problem if we're in a position where it's like someone can just say, oh, I quoted a scientific journal or I quoted a study, quote unquote, therefore that settles it. I, I have now defined the parameters of Christian worship. Hmm. So that, I think that's kind of like my overall disclaimer for that. Um, and some ridiculous yeah. things happen when people try to approach it in that way, which. Well, honestly, know, that's, that's, that's been, um, a f that's been probably a filter that I've used for a really long time. Cause I've heard lots and lots of sermons mm -hmm. on the topic of music from the traditional perspective. And there was a time where I even bought into it, you know? Yeah. Same. Um, and, uh, but I, the one thing I could never get away from, the, the one issue that haunted me, which is what constantly pulled me back toward a more balanced approach, um, is that if you just go sola scriptura, you can't, you, you can't sustain these claims. Right. You know, um, it's just, it's just not there. And so for me, it seemed like we're, we're, we're demonizing something. And of course, 
um, a lot of these ministries then go beyond saying it's bad. They, they It's like, oh, your salvation could be at stake and your kid's mm-hmm. salvation could be at stake. Um, and I understand like the marketing behind that and, you know, like the cre- creating urgency and pushing emotional buttons and, you know, uh, click, yeah. f- you know, click bait and all those types click of things. Bait. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's what gets you um engagement attention and engagement yeah um but you know at, it was this hyper sort of sensitive or hyperbolic view on music and i always came back to like god doesn't seem as worried about this as we do because if it was really as serious as ministry xyz wants to make it out to be where you know like their entire um you know what's the word i'm looking for their entire like sales funnel is built on <laughs> these topics it's yeah. like clearly god didn't care that much because the bible just doesn't say <laughs> any yeah. of this stuff and not saying that the bible doesn't touch on the topic of music and we will talk about that um yeah but it, it it's not as central to the narrative of scripture as some people make it seem um and even then when you parse what scripture says about it you don't arrive at the same conclusions no you know? So, um, yeah, so I, I hear you, man. Like, I think, you know, I can hear like the most impressive sermon citing all the scientific stuff. And I just come back to scripture. I'm like, dude, I just, yeah, I'm God clearly is not as worried about this as you are. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that puts the point perfectly, you know? Mm. Um, so the next step I think is then saying, okay, given that we can say, well, it's a, it's a sola scriptura issue all we want. But at the end of the day, people are still going to appeal to the sciences, right? So, okay, fine. Begrudgingly, I will let you appeal to the sciences. Let's see how well you're doing that, right? This is, this is, this is the next step. So um, one thing that I would like to say to a lot of Adventists is interrogate your sources. Please interrogate your sources. Because, and I understand, like, Part of the problem here is that, like, it is a privilege to have free time, right? It, it is a privilege to have disposable time to do dense reading. My my work is supposed to revolve around reading a lot and writing a lot, and I don't read as much as I should. So, like, I get it, right? And so I, I do understand to a point that, like, people need to be able to trust their leaders to be, like, intellectually responsible. But unfortunately, the fact is, when it comes to this topic... A lot of our leaders, especially the ones who make the most noise about this on the traditionalist side, maybe it sounds inflammatory, but just straight up, they're not intellectually responsible. So um, back in 2019, this was at the General Conference Annual Council. Um, I I believe the guy's name was Ross Grant. Um, He was doing basically, it was a devotional talk of all things, right? Um, Leave it to Adventists to... (laughs) have a devotional talk that consists of a lengthy PowerPoint. Um, I think that says something about us. But anyways, um, it was the the theme, interestingly, at that general at, uh, at that annual council was on our uh, fundamental belief of Christian behavior, which I think strikes me as one of the most vacuous and ill-defined and malleable of them, malleable in a bad way, like in an ad hoc type of way. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... It's uh, not saying I don't believe there's such a thing as Christian behavior. I just think that we really like to police that one. Um, and, and, it's, and, always it's in- always, and it's always constrained to, again, Eurocentric value structures. Yes. And a number of other things. And this is the, this is a thing I want to throw out, too, because I don't think that this always necessarily comes back down to, like, racial and, like, Eurocentric issues. I think that's a massive, like overwhelming part of it. But in this, I think we're going to run into some other worldview pieces that are equally um, problematic. But I mean, anyways, so this presentation, he gets to a slide that to this day just baffles me as like one of the worst things I've ever seen presented in terms of like quality um, and also one of the most perfect like distillations of the kind of mental gymnastics and incompetence that gets passed Mm. off as intellect oftentimes. Mm. So this, I have a screenshot of this somewhere, but basically the title is music and electronic media, which is already arbitrarily broad as a category. 
and it only had four quotes on it and a picture of like a head with a brain, you know, whatever in the middle. So one quote said something to the effect of um, certain types of simplistic rhythms um, when they're repeated over and over again, have a hypnotic effect and mm. can even put the brain into alpha wave states. Okay. So this whole brain, well, I'll get to the brainwave thing in a second, but first the, the thing about the rhythms, this is where ad hoc reasoning go, just runs amok. Ad hoc is, it's in philosophy, ad hoc is a type of fallacy. It means to this, literally. So it's when, it's basically moving the goalposts, right? It's saying like, oh, well, my theory couldn't account for this. So now I'm going to slightly modify and say, oh, this was my theory all along. It, it, oh, it accounts for this, right? Moving, moving the goalposts of your, your philosophical system. So <laughs> the, there's a tendency within Adventist traditionalists thinking about music and worship to say, okay, rhythm is the thing that I think people will most likely dance to. So I need to prove that it's bad, no matter how I prove it's bad, right? And <laughs> in this presentation, the quote that he has there says, in certain kinds of music with simple rhythms that are repeated over and over again, there can be a hypnotic effect. And he quotes from, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a partial quote. It's just Jay Maclis. M-A-C-H-L-I-S, uh, I think. I'm literally going from memory, but this should tell you how much I've looked at this, which is depressing. Um, but <laughs> basically, it's, a, it's a, an author by the name of Joseph Maclis, who's written a number of things on like music theory and uh, music enjoyment books, right? Kind of like introducing people how to like understand what they're listening to, right? And the thing that's hilarious to me is that just within the wording, there should be like a big red flag going off for anyone who has listened to other Adventist presenters on this topic. If you listen to someone like Christian Berdahl, he's scared of syncopation and polyrhythms and the, the arousing, energizing, overstimulating effect that so supposedly assaults the body, right? What, what are they? They're complex rhythms, mm. rhythms with increased complexity. What did this guy complain about? like in this slide but by using this quote he was like sometimes simple rhythms can put your brain in a alpha wave state i'm playing i haven't made this video yet because this is going to be like eighth in the series but i'm literally just going to juxtapose the two of them simple rhythms complex rhythms simple rhythms complex rhythms simple and just like to do it a bunch of times to so just be like hey look they're not saying the same thing so which Ooh. one is bad for you the simple rhythms or the complex rhythms because uh there's not like much of an in-between, especially since Berdahl's definition of complex is just moving the emphasis from one and three to two and four. There's really like, that's still extraordinarily simple. So there's like almost no middle ground between these categories as far as this theological camp is concerned. So mm. this, is, this is one of those things. It's like, oh, this is an example of people who are selectively mining the data, right? And I know I can say that because huh, Christian Berdahl has also cited from Joseph Maclis before. One, Joseph Maclis does not use the term hypnotic in a negative sense, just in a descriptive sense. Why? Well, if you look up some of his other works or like comparable like versions of like, he's written more than one music enjoyment book, right? And I wasn't able to find the ones that were directly cited from in this uh, PowerPoint presentation. But if you look at a number of his other books, he talks about this very same phenomenon of simple rhythms having a sort of hypnotic effect and maybe putting you into an alpha wave brain state in reference to minimalist music, ambient music, new age mm -hmm. music. So what that means is very, very soft, simplistic minimalist music, right? We're not talking about loud, bombastic trap music. We're not talking about dubstep. We're not talking about whatever the cool new like Afrobeat song is, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about yeah. extremely subdued music that is meant to put you into a state of relaxation. So kind of like the kind of music you would expect to hear if someone was doing meditation. 
Yeah. Or like the kind of music you would hear at like a massage parlor or a spa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Like this, hmm, like just like that type of thing, like synthesized pads or like, Mm -hmm. you know, like very, very simple, like dung, dung, dung type of like drumming, right? Simple Mm -hmm. rhythms, ambient music. And like, this is what's being referred to. Um, But in this, this devotional talk at the annual council, he had the nerve to say this and just be like, you know, I went to a, a, another church in, in our area, and it seems like some of these rhythms are making their way into our church services, obviously referring to like contemporary worship and like loud drumming. And it's like, yeah, you're not talking about what your source is talking about at all. Yeah. Like you're, ju- you're making things up. This is literally what making things up looks like. Mm. Um, so, you know, th- this kind of thing where people will selectively use a source at, or even quote like, oh, this is a musicologist who said this and see see how it shows how this is so bad and it's like meanwhile that's not what that scholar was saying at all right um yeah. this very common um there was another guy who'd quoted um i just i was looking at it a second ago and then i closed it but it quoted like another like music musician about like something about the way music affects you and you're like ah see see it's bad you go look up this musician it's like oh celebrated jazz saxophonist plays with r&b and soul artists you're like okay this guy is not he's clearly not on your team when it comes to his opinion about music what what, this is so disingenuous right Mm -hmm. but let's talk about the brainwave thing because it scares people right it's the the language of brain science is intimidating i mean it's literally you know rocket science and brain science are the two things we use to exemplify something difficult right Mm -hmm. so it's like oh oh brainwaves. Ooh, I don't know anything about that. So alpha waves, beta waves, theta waves, and delta waves. Okay. Um, Beta waves are like, uh, from what I've read, like the fastest in in terms of like amplitude of the, the waves. And it's kind of like when you are actively engaged in something like you and I, because we're actively having a conversation, we'd probably be in like a beta wave brain state right now, right? It's just like, I'm, I'm paying attention to what I'm doing and I'm engaged, right? Um, the alpha wave state is the thing that like in the distraction dilemma with Christian Berdahl and a number of other people, obviously this presentation I'm talking about, they're going to talk about that as if it's like some hyper suggestible state where basically your mind is not alert and it's super vulnerable to outside influences where like, you know, heaven forbid the devil comes and speaks a temptation to you and you are basically like defenses down and you're more susceptible to be tempted, right? So like when you frame it that way, it sounds really, really, really scary and bad and dangerous. The problem is alpha waves, like they're not a state of hypnosis. like alpha waves are just slightly more relaxed than beta waves. Mm. And I'm not talking as a brain scientist here. I'm just like reading like basic articles of like scientists explaining this. So like beta waves are like, you're writing an email at work. Alpha waves are like, you just got done writing that email at work. You went to the lunchroom and you sat down and looked out the window. You are Mm. slightly more relaxed. Yeah. That's it. You're just slightly more relaxed. Right. And, and, and this approach that likes to catastrophize basic Mm. human anatomy, basic human physiology, I think is really damaging. I think it's actually related to something we're going to discuss a little bit later, but I'll save that. Um, It'll be obvious when it comes back up, but this idea that like the alpha wave brain state, is like the devil's going to get you now. (laughs) So, and it's interesting because like the, the the other two, uh, the, the theta waves and the delta waves, um, the example that I, I saw used for theta is like, you're driving on the highway at night. You've been driving for a long time. It's just been long. It's like a straight stretch of road. You haven't really been paying attention. You've been thinking about something else. And suddenly you kind of clue in and you see a road sign. And you're like, I'm there already. I have no recollection of having done the last like 45 miles. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, oh, you, you were slightly dissociated. You were in like a theta state. 
Yeah. That sounds is, is that kind of similar lot. to like when you're driving and you pull up into your you pull up into your uh, garage and you're like, "Oh, wow, how did I get here?" How did I get here? Yeah, exactly exactly that. <laughs> exactly. You go that. around the front of the car, make sure there's like there's no body on there. <laughs> you hit yeah, someone yeah, yeah, on the yeah. way and didn't notice. <laughs> yeah. It's a much that's a much more passive state, right? And it's interesting mm. because that sounds a lot closer to like this catastrophic alpha wave state that they like to make such a big deal about, right? But it's not even the same thing. And also it's like a totally normal human experience that like happens mm -hmm. to like pretty much anyone. And it's not like people don't turn into worse sinners because of it, That's like right. objectively. Right. And then there's <laughs> Delta waves, which is you are physically asleep. Um, so like, and, and it's like, there are these like super commonplace everyday simplistic things that are made to sound scary. They're exaggerated. Right. And one of the things that I think is happening here is that this vocabulary that like it's used as a way for people to like present the language of science essentially as a Trojan force, a Trojan force, a Trojan <laughs> horse for the logic of magic. You know, oh, obviously okay, that's my okay. Opinion, hold on. Right? Say, say, say that again. Say that again. Cause I think we're going to, we, we got to unpack that. That's deep. Say it again. It's using the language of science as a Trojan horse for the logic of magic. Wow. Whew. Bro, let me let me just let me just soak that in for a minute. <laughs> sure thing. Using the language of science as a Trojan horse to present the logic of magic. Yes. Yeah. Wow. wow. It's magical wow. superstitious okay. thinking. It's magical superstitious thinking wrapped up in the garb of scientific studies. Mm. Um, there's a guy you might know, David Hamstra, fellow Canadian. He did an article called Our... Oh, man, what's it called? I'm just going to pull this up really quick so I can get the title right, because I think it's, it's worthwhile. Yep. Adventist imported... Um, dang, I can't seem to find it now. Um, is it is it the one about like how we've imported paganism? Yes, are imported like pagan epistemology essentially. Yes, uh, Eric like, Luo wrote a similar article. Okay, yes, uh, it might it might be that one that you're thinking about. I mean, maybe I David Hamster wrote one as well, but I, I know you know Eric I, Luo wrote wrote an article on that on that topic. Excellent, like absolutely brilliant article. Um, yeah, Adventist imported. Yeah, you know you're right. It was Eric. You're right. Yeah. Adventist yeah shout out, Eric. Paganism. What's up, bro? <laughs> yeah. So there's that. I, I think I, I think I'm confusing two articles because there's definitely this one. And then there's also another one that Hamstra wrote about that's more on the epistemological side. But like both of them, I think, are very good, like companion pieces for each other, where essentially we import a lot of like superstitious modes of reasoning. And we just wrap them in in like a veneer that seems more acceptable to like what we're supposed to be doing as like Bible Christians. Mm -hmm. um, and I, to me, that seems very much like what's happening with this kind of thing with the quote unquote scientific studies. Excuse me. Um, because really, like there, there is no scientific rigor that is applied when it comes to this stuff. Again, it's like, am I mad about the simple rhythms or am I mad about the complex rhythms? Do I know the difference between polyrhythm and syncopation, or am I just going to treat anything rhythmic as if it's the exact same thing? Because at the end of the day, the goal is just prove that rhythm bad, right? So, like, that, that's really yeah. what it comes down to. Um, interestingly, and yeah, and I was just going to jump in and say, and uh, and and again, um, just just for the sake of like, you know, reinforcing this theme, um, this debate or this this agenda of proving that a certain musical expression is bad it far is is a it, it is a agenda that is deeply nested in secular conversations particularly racialized secular conversations so right. it's not like we're the only ones having this because we really want to be holy and we have to find out about the bad music so no 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 like this yep. stuff has been going on way before and the church just imported this racialized um rhetoric and mm -hmm. ideology and has yeah and has baptized it but now we're moving into this idea um 
And I really, really, really want to unpack this because I guess we can we can start moving into the philosophical assumptions now. Yes. Um, the, the whole idea, as you mentioned before, uh, the logic of magic. And there's there are uh, unspoken philosophical influences that are behind um, mm-hmm. this, what you refer to as, as the logic of marriage, uh, marriage, <laughs> magic. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and, and I want to unpack that. Now, before you do, I just wanted to throw one other thing for people to really consider that's, mm-hmm. uh, a lot simpler. And then we'll get into this complex, you know, sort of, well, it's not too complex, but we'll make it simple. But I just wanted to throw one, one other thing out there that I think is really important that, that people really need to consider. Um, I, I've been running an online ministry for seven years now, mm. roughly seven years. And it's taken roughly seven years for it to get to the point where it looks like it's actually making an impact. You know, like for the first few years, it was like, nobody's engaging with this content. You know, like, what's the point? I wanted to quit so many times, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm glad I didn't because it's it's certainly impacting a lot of lives now. But for the longest time, I was like, oh, this is a waste of time. I'm going to quit. So I did some courses on marketing to see maybe I can learn how to market better online. Um, mm-hmm. Because there's so much content overload. If, if you don't stand out, people are not going to, you know, <laughs> not going to bother. And one of the things I learned, and I'll, 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 I'll cut the long story short, but the main thing that I learned, and it was really tragic, is as I studied marketing, particularly with an Adventist audience in the focal point, mm-hmm. is that Adventism or Adventist culture tends to respond to fear-based marketing the most. That's what we respond to, right? Yeah. We don't, we don't, re- we don't respond well to other models of marketing or to to other uh, um, sort of like um, marketing is all about enticing, right? You're enticing the person yeah. to engage your content. We we find fear enticing, mm-hmm. and I thought to myself, look, I don't want to use fear based marketing because that's the problem I think we have in our church. Like we need to get away from that. Um, so I decided to take the long road <laughs> of slowly building content that was independently valuable and that people would eventually the word would spread and, and more people would engage with it. Um, right. But here's, here's the thing that I've, I've discovered. And I, ha- I had a chat about this with um, Mike Manea and Adrian Zaid as well, who wrote a series on, um, on, on the one project. And he had a whole article. Well, maybe not the whole article, but he had one section where he was talking about how independent ministries generally thrive within Adventism. And the way he framed it was so good. I don't, re- I don't even remember what the article's name was, but he framed it really well. And his point was like, imagine you have a subculture of Adventists and someone decides, I'm going to start a business um, selling content to Adventists. And you realize these people respond really well to fear. Okay, so I'm going to market to their fear. That's the pain point. That's the emotive button I'm going to push because that's how marketing works. So I'm going to market to their fear in order to sell my DVD set. All right. right. So you, you, you create this DVD set, you know, um, uh, satanic delusions exposed, uh, seven things you must know and your children. So you don't end up in hell and uh, at least five (laughs) explosions on the cover. Yeah, Some yeah, yeah. And maybe a pope. <laughs> Definitely a pope. Definitely a pope. <laughs> and 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 you tour the United States going from church to church and people buy your DVDs and you're doing well, man. You're making good money. Um look, in a subculture like Adventism, you're never gonna be rich, but you're doing well. You're putting food on the table and your ministry has enough funds to continue to create more content. That's great. Um the problem is that another guy comes along and decides, I want to do the same thing. Um but you already you already have a market speaking into satanic delusions exposed the seven things you and your children must know to not go to hell you know so you're like i got to tap into the fear base but i got to do it from a different angle so i'm going to go at it from the angle of you know um false there's all these false doctrines that are sneaking into the church and maybe it's jesuits who knows right like i'm going to create right. a whole product base off of that and i'm going to market right. it and i'm going to go on tour around all the churches and sell my dvd set and then another guy jumps into the pot and says i want to have the same business plan 
and have a self-supported ministry where I, I'm not employed by the church. And I'm going to use the same marketing gimmick, but the, the market's already kind of saturated because this is a small subculture of people. So I've got to find a unique selling point. And this, this is one of the keys to having a successful business. You have to have a unique selling point. You've got to push a button no one else is pushing. And so you have to find, you have to use that fear-based marketing because it's what works, but you have to find a unique niche within that. And so now you're, you know, you got one guy over there talking about Jesuits. You got the other guy over there talking about satanic delusions. And, and now you're going to, you decide, oh, I'm, I'm going to talk about music, right? Or I'm right. going to talk about Hollywood and movies and and so what you end up with then is you end up with all of these independent ministries who, in order to put, you know, in order to, to make sales, have to market to fear, but they have to do it with unique selling points or else they're all talking about the same thing and the market gets oversaturated and nobody's making good sales. And right. so what you end up with then is you end up with a culture that is hypersaturated in, in fear because... People, marketers have discovered that the best way to sell the Adventists is to appeal to their fear, but we have mm -hmm. to do it in unique ways. And what you end up with is a culture where every single year, and I'm being nice here, it's probably every three months, there is a new fear that you need to be aware of. And if you don't know about this fear, you and your children's salvation is at stake. Yeah. But guess what? I've got a DVD set and for $29.99, you can be exposed and you can be informed of this yep. new fear. And it's like along comes the guy talking about movies and along comes the guy talking about, you know, the papacy and, 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 and the uh, emergent church. Every few months, there's a new thing we have to know. And I don't think a lot of people realize like that there is a serious, there is marketing science that undergirds a lot of this and 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 the thing is with marketing is like you don't do well marketing if you're not pushing emotional buttons you have to be hyperbolic you have to exaggerate you yeah, have to sensational you know yeah. you you have to be sensational and theatrical and dramatic because that's what sells that's that's mm -hmm. how i'm gonna sell my dvd set and put food on the table and when you have a whole bunch of people competing for the attention of the same group of people, all using fear-based marketing, you end up with a culture that is just drowning in doom and gloom and right. drowning again in misinformation and drowning in simplistic um, approaches to how we understand because you know i can't make my dvd set if i include nuance and complexity that's just that's just kills its sensationalism so yeah, it, it's that's not it's very easy you know exactly so this is a great business plan to make good money and, and so i just wanted to throw that in there before we get into the philosophy and stuff like even apart from you know these undergirding principles be aware and i'm not saying that people who run independent ministries are all just like conniving in a back room somewhere to get your money i think a lot of them are sincere uh, and I think a lot of them are products of the same systemic, yeah. you know, nonsense. <laughs> they are um, a product and, of and the same culture that they are now perpetuating. Like exactly. someone else was doing yeah. this before them. And it, and the thing mm -hmm. is, I'm sorry, I know I'm, I'm cutting you off, but like no, 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 what, you're, yeah. what you're describing is an environment that requires one-upmanship, mm -hmm. right? You, you can't just find a different lane. If you, or if you can't find a different lane, you have to occupy someone else's lane, but in a more exaggerated way, right? You have to, you have to crank that to 11. Uh, there, right. there, there's, something, there's something just like characteristically heavy metal about the, the marketing strategy and the graphic design and everything that goes into this. And, I, and as much as I'm a lover of that genre, I mean that in a bad way, right? It's like, mm -hmm. but this knob goes to 11. <laughs> right the, the fear knob goes to 11 so i why not i'll turn it all the way up right that's right um yeah. and it's interesting because like being that bombastic on an electric guitar or a drum set is absolutely unacceptable within adventism but mm -hmm. lo and behold if you want to be that much of a sensationalist and that much of an emotional manipulator and that much of a whatever it's fine to put 200 explosions on the front of your dvd cover and like 14 presidents, 12 popes, and like the Statue of Liberty and tanks and be yeah, like, this yeah. is a Bible study. You know, you know what I mean? Like, that's right. And, yeah. and it's, I mean, it's silly. Uh, it's hypocritical. And un 
I agree with you that I think there are many people who aren't actually consciously doing it on purpose, that they sincerely believe like, no, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what God wants me to do. And something that I think will come up again that you, you're tapping into right now, kind of, I think we're on the same wavelength, uh, but in, in kind of like the, the seventh part of this, I think there is an epistemology of danger, right? Uh, mm. A framework of, th of thinking about the world in terms of risk and danger and threats. Mm. Um, and, and I've seen that come up even in the way that people have spoken about like the series I've been putting out, right? Being like, yeah. oh, it's dangerous to say things this way or to associate such and such with racism, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and this is like, uh, it's, it's baked into the fabric of our Adventism to, to yeah, think in absolutely. terms of like, basically only in terms of hostility and, and, and warfare. I mean, yeah. great controversy, yeah. right? Um, but I think we haven't understood that the thing that wins the war is actually love. So, right. I mean, that's yeah, something yeah. for us to wrestle with, right? Absolutely. And I think the, the impact that this mentality has on our, on our individual expression as human beings, on our individual humanity and on our, our collective humanity is really tragic because uh, what you end up with is entire, an entire subculture of people who are meant to be revealing the character of God to the world mm -hmm. uh, over against the lies about him, but who are too uptight and too tense and too on edge to to really engage meaningfully with culture because we're you know we don't see culture as hey let's build some bridges and love people and and you know contextualize and find ways to appreciate and find the fingerprints of god no we're too scared because we've been conditioned to always be scared and we've right. been conditioned to always be scared because this is how people who want to sell us stuff can sell us more stuff. The more scared we are, the more I can sell you my DVDs. And again, you know, I, I don't mean to imply that uh, as, a, as a moral judgment on people who do that, because I don't know their individual motives and some people might have sincere motives, but it doesn't change the fact that there is a system that people seem to be sucked into and seem to perpetuate that is built on this premise. So mm -hmm. be mindful of that because that kind of mentality kills your ability to engage meaningfully with culture and with people who are different from you. And uh, when you are primed and ready to demonize and catastrophize anything and everything that's different from you, you can pretty much kiss missional effectiveness goodbye. So be, be wary of that. And also, you know, don't be a sheeple, man. Like understand that there is a lot <laughs> of marketing at play. People are trying to make sales and don't buy into the rhetoric <laughs> without right. critical thought. Yeah. You actually used sheeple. I'm amazed. I use I use sheeple, bro. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's oh, let's great. let's let's jump into this philosophical thing. So um um yeah, so as we mentioned the earlier, word... there's a lot of sorry, go on. Oh no, I was saying you used the word humanity, which is a nice little segue, but this is yeah, this is true. Well, there, as we mentioned before, um, I went into the whole marketing thing. Like, there's there's a lot of underlying unspoken philosophical influences that are at play when people decide, here's my bias and here's what I want to going to set out to prove. So I'm going to grab that study and that quote. There is already an idea, an underlying primordial yeah. philosophical assumption that is already at play. Now, we may not be able to unpack all of them, but take us through some of them. Yes. So thank you for that great transition. Wow. It's like you do this often or something. I so, do my best. I do my best. Um, one, of, one of the things that I want to talk about um, that is more on the, like, the philosophical side, and I'm going to have to do some like definition of terms because what, I'm using them somewhat loosely, and also one of the terms is kind of loose in and of itself. So Gnosticism and Platonism. Um, full disclaimer, I am not nearly uh, as anti-Greek as a lot of Adventists I meet. Um, just my my particular training just prevents like, me like, from being like me. I'm like so anti-Greek. <laughs> yeah, I'm I, I have a lot of sympathy for the church fathers, and I think that they are underappreciated for their significant contributions to historical theology. Oh, I can um, do I that. think yeah. I, th I think we uh, exaggerate the badness of the ecumenical councils. Um, some of them are kind of wild. Some of them, I think, are very important. But th that's besides the point. 
I meet a lot of Adventists who are like super, 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 super anti-Greek in ways that I'm just like, I don't, I don't know, man. This is, this is a lot. This, this. Well, I don't, this I don't know if you, I, mean, <laughs> I don't know if you ever like read my picking. book Weird. Uh, what is it? A uh, weird, weird evolution. My book Weird Evolution. I wouldn't say it's super, super, super anti-Greek, but it's potentially super, super. So maybe <laughs> no, we should, and you I, and I should have some some conversations on the side about. Uh... <laughs> I, I've, uh, I have, I have a slightly different disposition towards metaphysics than than some people. I've talked to Mike Renea about this a little bit, and and mm. you know. I've talked to a few of my seminary professors about this, but that's an aside. All of that is actually a really interesting distraction from the fact that I'm going to be a little bit like anti-Greek philosophy right now. So <laughs> it's a step out of character for me. But okay. Um, so when it comes down to like ancient Greek anthropology, um, within the tradition that comes from Platonism, you have this idea, especially with Plato, that like the physical world is somewhat illusory not not completely like it's real but there's something up there an ultimate reality that's more real right that that has a a, a truer more authentic ontology something that it's it's where we came from it's where we derive from and ultimately we're going back there we're going to escape this finite physical reality and we're going to return to that supreme ultimate good reality right i mean plato's heaven like there's all of that language. There's great resources online if people want like a crash course on philosophy. For example, the series Crash Course Philosophy. Um, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. But um, so, you know, I mean, I'm not getting my stuff from there because like I, I have a degree in this stuff. But anyways, um, with Platonism, you get, I mean, interestingly, Platonism kind of gets handed down to the rest of historical Christianity by Augustine, right? Augustine is kind of like the, the preeminent Platonist of classical theology or early classical theology, right? And, and, you know, Aquinas obviously later on becomes our Aristotelian when the West became aware of Aristotle again. Um, but within this, this framework that kind of places the non-physical reality as better than the physical reality, you get a whole host of ideologies and philosophies and ways of looking at humans that kind of develop in, in a bad way into the early history of Christianity. So when we use a term like Gnosticism, am I making sense so far? Because I, I know I'm using a lot of vocabulary. No, no, you, you're making sense to me, but I'm slightly an academic, so um, sure. <laughs> not, not a I'll, full-on academic, but slightly. <laughs> I will try to, I'll try to tie all these threads together. All I'm saying okay. is that with, with Plato, you have a view where the physical reality is somewhat lesser, right? Lesser in importance, lesser in ontology, lesser in value. That's right. With Gnosticism, what you have, Gnosticism was a kind of sort of Jewish Christian offshoot movement in especially the second century, like the second century is when it really hit its stride, right? There's like a beta version of it or like hints towards it in the first century that I think you get like acknowledged in the Bible as becoming a problem. Mm -hmm. um, but like, you know, what scholars have typically called Gnosticism doesn't really hit its stride till the second century. And then you also have to make the caveat that like, Gnosticism itself as a term is kind of an umbrella term because there was no single group of people that actually referred to themselves as we're the Gnostics, right? Mm -hmm. It refers to a cluster of ideologies that tend to, to prioritize things like salvation by secret knowledge of some sorts and like rising up levels of secret knowledge, stuff like that. Um, appropriating Christian ideas, but also throwing in a lot of like Platonic Greek ideas into the mix. Um, and so, you know, this is where you get like a number of like overlapping heresies of like the classical, like the patristic era of Christianity, right? The first four or so centuries. Um, docetism, for example, the idea that Jesus only seemed human, right? This derives from the idea, again, kind of tracing its roots back to Plato, that if Jesus was a manifestation of the true highest good, the true highest God, the ultimate reality, then he could not have been part of our physical earthly reality because that would have tainted him. That would have corrupted him. Like the, the physical world is bad, right? Um, That's right. The Gnostics would have taken this like a step further. Again, Gnostic is a loose term, but 
in general, you had, well, not in general, you had groups within Gnosticism that would say, okay, the physical world as we know it, the observable universe was created by some like lesser kind of contemptible demiurge of sorts, a lesser God who's malicious and kind of negligent and awful. Right. Mm. And that's why this world is imperfect and full of suffering. It's why our bodies aren't perfect. It like, and there's a contempt for physical reality within that. And then they would posit that the real God, the good God, the God of love and justice and like all things good and true, whatever you could say as like maxing out all of like the good forms in Plato's heaven, that being is the one who sent Jesus Christ into the world. And so mm. you end up with a Jesus who only seems human. He's not truly human. He doesn't step all the way into our reality because the physical is bad. The physical is dirty. It's tainted. Mm -hmm. It was literally created by a lesser inferior God, right? Mm. And so this perspective exists. You get hints in the Bible. I mean, those, for example, in the first epistle of John, it, it comes pretty clear that there are some groups who are teaching apparently that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh, that he only seemed human, right? And, and John makes this very explicit. He even says, um, we know who's of the spirit of Antichrist. Anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is Antichrist, mm -hmm. right? And that's potent, powerful language right there, right? Like this is, this is not the language to use when you're messing around as a Christian, mm -hmm. right? This is, I'm not messing around right now, heresiology, yeah. right? Antichrist. <laughs> Um, so, you know, you have that there. I think you also get a, a pretty hearty dose of it in Colossians chapter two. I know that that is a dicey chapter for us as Adventists, which is why I think probably a lot of people stay away from it. But like, you get this very real sense that there are people who want to deny the goodness of the physical reality. Um, one of the things that N.T. Wright talks about quite a bit that I have appreciated, especially coming from like a, you know, a Protestant scholar who sits somewhere between mainline and evangelical. He's really hard to place. But uh, N.T. Wright has been really good at critiquing the kind of escapist eschatology that permeates so much of modern Christianity. This idea that this world is just kind of a, a lost cause, an awful, terrible place, and that one day we're going to escape from it. We are going to go far away to a place called heaven and never come back, and, and we're going to leave this awful, wretched world behind which is not the vision of scripture at all, right? The, the vision of scripture is resurrection of the body, the reunion of heaven and earth, the, the, the coming together of all things, the, the renewal of creation, right? Yeah. And, and we live eternity here on a renewed earth, not mm. in some faraway distant place, right? That's right. And, and that's one of the things he's like, this is a holdover of Epicureanism, right? Another form of Greek thought that's just like, oh, well, we'll, we'll get away from here one day, you know? Mm. But he points the finger at Epicureanism and Stoicism and at least one other thing. It, it, it's all very interesting. But um, yeah, so there's all of these, th these clusters of Greek philosophical thoughts that tend to denigrate physical reality and, and elevate spiritual reality. With that in mind as your backdrop, you, if you understand that that is a heresy that was trying to make its way into the Christian church from like the first century, and like they had to use terms like antichrist to decry it, mm. and, and they were like, this is making inroads, right? Like be on the lookout for this. Keep that in mind and then look at some of the rhetoric that is used in the Adventist music and worship debate, right? I remember some years, many years ago, actually, watching a series, I believe it was by Brian Newman. I think it was entitled Voices of a Dying Planet. Um, and it was, you know, one of those seminars on like music and arts and entertainment and whatever, right? And he repeated a, a theme that I've seen echoed by many preachers. Ivor Myers is one who has kind of echoed this, but the idea is music has a hierarchy. And it's a, it's a moral hierarchy. It's an ethical hierarchy with rhythm at the bottom because rhythm appeals to that which is physical. And harmony in the middle, the second rung up, because it appeals to that which is intellectual. And melody at the top because melody is spiritual. And spiritual things are better than intellectual things, which are better than physical things. And I'm like, mm. you Platonists, what is going on here? 
Like, what kind of Gnostic nonsense is this? Right? No hate. I know there are modern Gnostics. There are, there are people who embrace it as a life philosophy. And this, this is no disrespect to, as Paul says, who am I to judge those outside the church? Let's judge those inside the church, right? Um, but like, I, I hear that and I'm just like, how is this not explicitly the very philosophy that the apostles were fighting against in the first mm. century? Like, this is almost explicitly that you are saying spiritual reality is greater than uh, physical reality. In, in my undergrad, uh, the, the term that I learned for it was axiological dualism, right? So you can have an idea of dualism, right? There are Christians out there who believe like fully like immortality of the soul, go to heaven or hell right after you die, and they don't adopt an axiological view of, of the body and the soul. They, they, they genuinely like, yo, my physical health is important. Let me go exercise, you know? Mm-hmm. Like they, they don't adopt like, oh, my body is awful. And it's like, no, God's good creation is good and I'm thankful for it, right? Mm-hmm. But like an axiological dualism says like there's two facets to reality and one of them is actually better than mm. the other, right? That, that's what this is. This is an axiological dualism, which makes no sense for Adventists, yeah, it does. Right. It does, it's it's it does like not. literally, literally goes in the opposite direction of of it flies our in the face yeah. of our actual doctrines. That's right. Yeah, and I've heard so many of these these traditionalist so called preachers. I'm like, you're not a traditionalist Adventist at all, because you're you're directly contradicting our doctrines by saying rhythm is physical. Melody spiritual, spiritual better than physical. I'm like, you don't even believe in those categories, my dude. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. So, by the way, uh, the, the the caveman, the caveman there is. Uh, you're 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 pretty good at the caveman. Just want to throw. That I there. I have you to practice often, that a lot, dude. <laughs> I, I suppress my inner caveman on a regular basis. It's the metal, like that's what it is. It's there. It's you go. Escape, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an escape route for my inner caveman. You know. That's it, man. That's it. But hey, but, you make uh, a really, really extra, excellent point here. Um, the notion that the physical is bad or suspect or somehow dirty. And and this is also a part, you know, like uh, when I was growing up, uh, the church that I grew up, I grew up in a Latin Adventist church. Mm-hmm. Um, and Latino Adventist churches, um, a lot of people in those churches come from Latino countries, which are predominantly Catholic. Right. Um, and sometimes, unfortunately, most of the time, they join the Adventist church because they're convinced that our doctrines are correct, things like the Sabbath, for example, right? right. But they bring, they bring some of their Catholic dogma with them, some of which is deeply rooted in, in um, you know, uh, ideas like yeah. uh, Greek, you know, Greek philosophical ideas. And so one of the common trends when I was growing up was that um, sex is bad, Right. Like, and God permits it because people need to reproduce, but it's dirty and it's filthy and it's not okay. And um, if a husband and wife have sex, it better not be on the Sabbath because that's a desecration of holiness to have sex on a holy day. Um, And um, and and, you know, some people would even go so far as to suggest that just sort of an Augustinian idea, like you can have it, but try not to enjoy it because it's something about it that is bad. And this is rooted in the same idea that anything that's physical is bad, that if, 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 if there's physical enjoyment involved, if it makes you want to move, if it makes you want to dance, if it makes you want to express yourself with joy, it's automatically bad. bad. And yeah. these are not ideas that are rooted in scripture. These are ideas that are rooted in Gnostic thought. Um, yeah. It's yeah. like aggressively anti-Hebrew Bible way of thinking. Mm. Like it's like if you wanted to go to the polar opposite of like the grounded, very earthy, very rooted view of humanity that you have in the Hebrew Bible, look no further than this way of looking at things, you know, <laughs> because it's like Absolutely. you are just aggressively flying against the grain of scripture. Mm. Um, and and, and Absolutely. to me, that's that when I realized that when I clued into that, that was really distressing to me. Because I was like, oh, wow, that's like, now that I see it, it should be like really obvious Hmm. that like we're using the wrong categories for our own theological framework. And the fact that it comes out of the the mouths of like pastors, I'm like, 
are y'all thinking about what you're mm. saying before you say it, my dude? Yeah. Like, come on. That's it for today, everyone. We are out of time, but this is going to continue for quite a few episodes. So make sure you keep tuning in. Like, share, subscribe, tell your friends about it, and uh, enjoy the journey along with us. In the meantime, if you haven't had a chance to do it yet, I invite you to go to the storychurchproject.com and check out the new Bible study guide, The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture. The second edition is now available. And this is a Bible study set that's been specifically designed for communicating the narrative of redemption, the story of Scripture, to millennials, Zeds, uh, post-church, unchurched, post-modern generations. Make sure you check that out. Get your hands on a copy, and I will catch you next week. Mm-hmm.